I would ask you to turn with me in your Bibles once again to the book of Judges, chapter 13. We continue our exposition through Judges as we look at chapter 13 together. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Please follow along with me in your Bible. Again the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son." Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you. And we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering, and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, because we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering, 
and a grain offering from our hands. Nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahana, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtael. Last week, the emphasis of the sermon was on the danger of pride. And that we ought to not think of ourselves more highly than we should. We ought not to esteem ourselves so greatly that it damages our relationship with God and with other people. Bearing that aspect of pride in mind, bearing that aspect of humility that is so important in mind, we look at this chapter. And we see that this chapter gives us a glimpse at the life of someone chosen and consecrated for special service to the Lord. Over the next course of weeks, we're going to be uh, reading about Samson. All of us are somewhat familiar, at least a little bit, of the tragedy of Samson and of his exploits and of his end. However, every strength that Samson was given, every blessing, every opportunity, every privilege came from the Lord's hand. Even as we consider his consecration in this sermon today, we also consider our own eternal souls. We also consider our own personalities, our own opportunities, our own place in time and space and our own gifting and purpose for the glory of God. At the top of your outline, you have a well-known verse from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. Ephesians tells us that we were chosen in God as the elect before the foundation of the world. We remember that we serve a God who exists outside time. For us, time is linear, and one thing follows another, but not for God. God exists outside of that. He controls it. He's the master of it. He's the creator of it. He is not bound by time. And just... As Samson was known before birth from eternity past, just as Jeremiah was known before birth from eternity past, so are we. God's people had sinned before. God's people had been oppressed before. We know that from going through this book. God's people had needed judges and deliverers before. But God raised up other judges in their appointed time. In chapter 13, we get a little bit more of a glimpse of the background to that. This is the first time we're getting a sense of God raising up a judge, and we're seeing before he was born from his parents' perspective as well. We're told in the book of Esther... That even though God is not named in Esther particularly in any way, we're told in the book of Esther that she was appointed and put in her situation for such a time as this. Well, that was Samson as well. And you need to understand and you need to realize that it is no accident that you live in 2020. It is no accident that you were born at your present time. It's no accident that you've experienced what you've experienced. 
It's no accident. God has put you to be here at the right time to accomplish exactly what he wants you to accomplish and to serve him for exactly the purpose that meets your present circumstances today. A lot of times we're thankful that we live at this time. Think of all the luxuries that we enjoy, all the safeties that we enjoy, all the advancements in science and technology that we enjoy. Overall, from a material perspective, it's a good time to be alive. But we also have a tremendous amount of opportunity that God has gifted us with in our present time. Well, Samson was designed and known for his particular time as well. The whole narrative with Samson's parents shows us the special uniqueness of an individual's background and personality. We're familiar with the Lord's birth narrative. We think on that and we read that, especially around Christmas time. We're familiar with that and we recognize that he's the Son of God. We recognize his deity. And we think, okay, well, this is a, a particularly important narrative for an angel announce, to announce his birth and the circumstances surrounding it. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. Well, Samson is not God. Samson is not divine. Samson is just a normal human being. And yet, the angel of the Lord tells his parents, this is what you're going to do. This is what's going to happen. And this is the person that's going to come. Samson's human. But what we apply from this is that his genes, his heritage, his upbringing, his culture are all within the care and plan of God. And so are yours. If you have had a difficult family life, difficult background, if you've had a difficult upbringing, a difficult education, if a lot of things in your life have been a struggle, bear in mind that God had a reason for that. We're not saying that the sinful things that were endured on this earth were his fault. God is not the author of sin. But in his providential care and in his providential working, he put you where you were and where you are to grow, to mature, to have those experiences, to have those learning, those, those teaching moments, to have those struggles. Everything that you have gone through makes you uniquely able to serve in a way that no one else can. Consider your sovereign's choice in all of that and learn and be edified by it and grow in wisdom and grasp the design involved. We are not here by some random chance, but the master architect of all things has you as an element in his building and in his creation. All human beings serve a purpose for God. It's a shame that we even have to specify and say that. It's a shame that we even have to make that clear. Every life has the greatest potential to serve, the all, the, to serve God Almighty. Every life... If a person is known before birth, if a person is crafted and selected and designed by the Creator, then that life is not for waste. That life is not for nothing. Never assume the prospect of a person's life before they live it. 
Never assume because of their family circumstance or because of where they live or because of the opportunities presented to them or because of the circumstance of their parents that their life will not be worth living. Never assume that their life will be a miserable life or a failure life. You don't know that. That is not an absolute. Every life has the greatest potential, by God's grace, to be taken from the most miserable of circumstances and be granted the greatest opportunity possible. Don't ever put yourself in the seat of God and make a judgment call that this life will not be a good one. God doesn't do things in that way. And we ought to learn and understand that. With God's direction and with faith and with obedience, everyone, no matter who they are, has the opportunity to bring glory to God. If they obey him and follow his wisdom, there is always some element and some measure of success because he is being honored. Returning to chapter 13, we're told that Samson, though he was not divine, though he was not perfect, was formed and selected to be someone who was in direct service to God with his anointing. We're told that he was a Nazarite from his birth. Now, let's be clear. This is in reference to a Nazarite vow. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 6. Jesus was not a Nazarite. Jesus, because he lived in Nazareth, is called a Nazarene, but he was not a Nazarite. People have gotten that confused through the centuries, and one of the influences in artwork as to why Jesus is portrayed with long hair is because people misunderstood and assumed that he was under a Nazarite vow and therefore had long hair. It's not true. The common custom of the day was not to have long hair, but a Nazarite would have long hair. A Nazarite was to be someone who was given to God's people who has, who has given himself to God by vow for a, a, a certain period of time, in, in Samson's case, his whole life, they would be separated unto God and would bring an extra level of that sanctity and separation to God for service. They would drink no wine or strong drink. Even here, his mother is not supposed to be uh, drinking wine or strong drink. And that's really so that the life or at least during the time of the Nazarite vow, they would be about serious business and wouldn't be distracted or set apart by revelry or drunkenness. There would not even be the opportunity to fall into drunkenness because you wouldn't even be drinking one drink of wine or strong drink. So they were set apart and separated unto God for a serious and meaningful service. They were distinguished by appearance in not having a razor touch their head. They'd be, they, their beards would be long, their hair would be long, and their appearance would be unique because they were set apart unto God. Their lifestyle would be one that is unique because their focus would be on the Lord more than anyone else. Now, I submit to you that all Christians are also specially selected and specially set apart to God. 
I said in the previous point that all human beings have the greatest potential to serve God, and that's absolutely true. All human beings are put where they are by divine providence and have the greatest opportunity to glorify God. That's absolutely true. But a Christian knows they are separated unto God. A Christian knows they are made holy. A Christian knows that their life is different and is now belongs to someone else. And because of that, though they're not bound by a Nazarite vow, a Christian is also distinguished by their seriousness. Doesn't mean we don't laugh. Doesn't mean we don't understand humor in a good time. But we understand that the narrative of God's purpose overall is a serious one. And life and death are serious things, not to be wasted. The Christian also understands that they are to be distinctive, distinctive in appearance to a certain degree. Not necessarily look, not looking like a freak, not being someone who really is bizarre looking, but someone who understands that their body is the temple of the Lord's, and therefore they have a clean cleanliness about them, have a neatness about them, have an order about them. You care about your body, you care about your appearance, you have respect for what God has given you, and your appearance shows that. The Christian is separated unto God in their words. We don't use crude language, crude words, crude jokes. We don't tear people down. We are to be, to be very sober in, in what we say and careful about what we say. And also think about the imagery that our words bring. Our lifestyle is to be one of heaven, not of this world. Our lifestyle is to be one of God, not of self. We're separated to God because of that, as was Samson meant to be. Samson was consecrated for service to the Lord. Consecration is an old word. We don't use it as much anymore. But classically, they would consecrate churches or consecrate cemeteries or even bishops in certain denominations. What it is, is you're set apart for particular use by God. The Christian is separated unto God. Someone who is consecrated is, is set apart for particular use by God. Let's remember again that this is not just Samson who's consecrated, not just Old Testament priests, not just apostles, not just ministers of the Gospels, but all who call upon the name of the Lord, all who know the grace of God's salvation, have been, who have been washed by the cleansing blood of Christ, are consecrated unto service for the King. There's an element of that in baptism as well. In baptism, as we're washed by the water symbolically, there, and we have the mark of God and put upon us as the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, there's an element of consecration there. To live for God. To serve Him with our lives. And that consecration is the testimony of your life. Some people define themselves by their jobs, by their heritage, by their culture. They might define themselves by the music they listen to. You might define yourself by where you live or by your family. But that's not how the Christian is to define himself or herself. The Christian is to define themselves by their God, by the gospel. Defining myself in the aspect of the truth of the fact that I was lost and now I'm found. I was a sinner who was doomed to damnation and now I am consecrated to life service for eternity. 
There once was an emptiness. There once was a relativity. There once was a despair. There once was anxiety. There once was confusion and darkness and loneliness and melancholy and hopelessness. But now, out of the blindness of that relativity, out of the blindness of that hopelessness, I see... God has given me the light, and that light is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's your consecrated testimony. That's your meaning of life. That's your purpose. That's your fuel. The testimony of your salvation, of the good news that God has given to you, and of the fact that you are set apart for particular use by him. And you have eternal glory and rest because of it. As we read through this passage, it's important in examining it to also remember that there is an essential factor of instruction from God here. I've said before, and I'll say it again, that religion is abused when it comes from feelings, or when it comes from assumptions, or when it comes from uh, experience. Everything I have already said about calling, about consecration, about being separated unto God, must be word-based. As we read chapter 13, what comes up over and over again? That the angel, the messenger of the Lord is the one who communicates this truth to Samson's parents, the one who tells and who talks about what is to be. The angel or messenger of the Lord, whether it is Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, or whether it is a divine being sent to give the word of God, either way, the messenger of the Lord is itself bringing God's word. And we know very well from the New Testament that Christ is the incarnate word of truth. Christ is where we get all instruction. Christ is where we get all wisdom, all direction. We speak of the Bible and the word as the only rule for faith and practice. Well, so it must be in our consecration and in our service. We can't just make things up as we go along. We can't just change the truth to suit us. Spiritual truth is objective, just as our God is objective in defining and telling us who he is. But it must be according to his communication. The messenger and the word are foundational in the consecrated Christian life. The Bible is not an an amorphous, mystical text. God tells you exactly how to live. He tells you exactly how to treat people. He tells you exactly how to worship. He tells you what is important in this life and what is not important in this life. He tells you what will last for eternity and what will be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. What is Christ's instruction for you? How is your time best utilized Where will all that you do and say end up at the end? When you study the Word of God, understand that it is Christ's instruction given to you for that set-apart, consecrated life. Understand the context of it. Understand the history of it. Understand the meaning of it. Understand the grammar of it so that you get it right. Don't miss something important. Or don't get lost along the way in your own distractions and your own side road. I believe that the consecrated Christian life 
is one of great rest and of great security. Far too many Christians worry about what they have no control over. Far too many Christians live a life in fear and worry. Knowing God means that your salvation can never change. And God's mission will never change. The good news is the good news. Love for Him is love for Him. Love for others will always be vital and will always be important. And there is security and comfort in the unchanging mission of the Word of God that comes from direct revelation. We serve a God who has spoken objectively about life, about service, about good, about evil, about eternity. He's spoken about salvation. Now, he was objective in Samson's day, too. And all the instruction that Samson got was meant to build him up and to direct him towards God and for him to be most useful and to glorify God. His mission was also to be one of love and obedience to God. And we'll see, unfortunately, as we move through these chapters, that God didn't change. God wasn't wrong, but Samson did, and Samson was. He abused his consecration. Don't abuse yours. You have a great gift of life. You have a great opportunity here in the year 2020 to serve and glorify God, to build up His church and His kingdom. You have a great opportunity to live a consecrated life. You were known before the foundation of the world. You were crafted by the hand of an almighty, loving, providential God. You were put in circumstances to build you up and shape you and mold you. And now you are here to dedicate yourself to the living, risen Christ who has saved you, who has bought you, and who is to be our way and our truth and our life. Let's glorify him with our consecrated lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that this passage and this message would not be missed on us, but that we would live lives of consecration to you. Pray that everyone who has listened would renew their relationship and their commitment to you, would understand the seriousness and the sanctity of the Christian life, would understand the clarity and the importance of of knowing and obeying your word and your instruction, and would understand how marvelous you are to put us here, to give us your Son, to give us eternity, and to have, to have us serve and live for you. May we indeed delight in you in peace and rest and safety, enjoying you as we live and serve you, the Master. Apply this to us, and keep us consecrated, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.